hearing from God. We can identify with Israel. God was silent from a human perspective, but that doesn't mean that he had quit working on behalf of all mankind, that he had quit working in preparing the world for his savior. In Galatians 4, decades later, Paul would write this to the church at Galatia. He said, but when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was letting us know that this was God's timing. So when the fullness of time came, when things were prepared the way God wanted them to be for his Savior to enter the world, then it was appropriate. And God spoke again. The world was ready for a Savior but God was at work in these 400 years. And I want you to consider at least three ways that God was at work through the 400 years. One way was certainly just in giving the world a look at monotheism. All the pagan cultures essentially had a deity for every force of nature, for every human element and subject in life. There were all kinds of gods that they looked for. And by looking to the nation of Israel, they learned that there was one true God. They didn't necessarily believe it, but at least they were introduced to that. And for 400 years, they could see a nation that worshiped one true God. God was preparing the way for them, for the world at large, to get to know him. Another way was simply through the Greek empire. Alexander the Great saw himself as on a divine mission to spread the Greek culture. And so everywhere he went, he set up city-states, and he set up libraries, and he made the Greek language, the language of commerce and business. He made it the language of education. And what he did was prepare the world for God's word to spread. It was during this time that the Septuagint was translated. It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so even those pagans, even those in the Greek empire, even those that were not Jewish, could now read God's word in the lone language of the day. And later on was time to put out the biographies of Jesus and letters of instruction to the churches. The Greek language was used because everyone knew it. And God's good news could be broadcast to the world. A third area, not just monotheism and, and the Greek culture, but the Roman Empire rising. And there were many things about it. It brought a universal law. It united these city-states. But one of the great things that it did was to, to have a, a well-guarded and a well-built road system that went all throughout the Roman Empire. Heavily guarded so that you could actually travel. They promoted travel. And that was, of course, used by Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Timothy and others throughout the book of Acts to take the gospel to the European continent and to other places. God was at work in these 400 years. Not necessarily the way we would think. Not necessarily in all these great spiritual ways, but who is praying, preparing the way for the world to meet the Savior and to hear the good news of the gospel. Joy comes in realizing that God is always at work. Well, to the Roman to the Israelites, 
God seemed silent for generations and doubt began to creep in. People tried to build their lives without God. We do the same thing, don't we? We kind of live Amazon Prime lives. We're used to getting whatever we want within two days and sometimes, if we're fortunate, within one day. That is so ridiculously incredible and so much fun. But it begins to creep into the fabric of our lives, doesn't it? We have a little sense of entitlement if we don't get what we want when we want it. And so just think how that can even affect your prayer life. When you begin to pray for things and ask God for things and ask God for guidance and ask God for provision, and it doesn't show up the next day or within two days, do we pray for it once or twice or maybe three times? Or do you have the stamina to keep going? Many of us, because of the urgency of life and the culture around us, are too used to not waiting on God. And we take his silence as either he's not interested or he's not involved in my life right now or he doesn't need me, or he's not at work, and doubts begin to creep in, and we begin to trust other things, some of the louder voices that are around us, we begin to try to muscle through our own hardships and disappointments. We truncate our prayer lives and, and just quit praying about things. We look for that which we can control and manage in life instead of just trusting God and waiting on him believing that he is at work. God is always at work. He is not silent, and he has spoken in his word. And one biblical passage that brings back my perspective at times like that is Philippians 1, 6, uh, one of those great promises where Paul says, for I am confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, among you, will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. What a great promise. What, what a great promise to reflect on when I have to trust God, when you have to trust God, when you feel like you're not hearing from him in the midst of our prayer lives. Paul's words help stabilize me and remember that, yes, God is actively at work in my life, transforming me, even if I don't get the answer that I want when I want it. Well, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are in their 80s. And God breaks his silence of 400 years as Zechariah. And here, here we're in that section from verses 5 to 25 of chapter 1. God breaks his silence when Zechariah, the priest, goes into the altar of incense. And there is God's messenger to speak on behalf of God standing next to the altar. His name is Gabriel. We last saw him uh, speaking to Daniel in our summer sermon series on the book of Daniel. He's one of God's angels, and he is there to give a message to Zechariah. Zechariah is there to pray for his family, and he's pray to pray for the nation of Israel. And God breaks his silence. People are praying outside in the temple. Zechariah, prayer is answered. You're going to have. He's going to send Messiah. Your prayers have been 
answered. And Zechariah is just blown away, as we always see, right? Anytime the supernatural meets the natural in Scripture, people are just afraid and fearful and, and sometimes and told the people that he was here to fulfill those words. He brought salvation to a people in bondage to sin and death. Only Christ could pay the price necessary for our redemption. That's the first image, the opening of a prison door. The second image is the winning of a battle. We see this in verses 69 to 75. Verse 69, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Let's pause there and, and, and just comment on some of those words. The horn there is a symbol of victory and strength. It's the horn of an oxen with great power and strength to win the battle. The picture here is of an army that's about to be cap taken captive, but the rescuer comes in and defeats that army and defeats them in such a way that they can never come back and attack again. They are thoroughly and completely defeated, and that's what Jesus has done for us. He has defeated sin, death, and Satan at the cross. And so when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you believe that he died on the cross for your sins in your place, was buried and rose again, he enters your life to lead you. He gives you the free gift of eternal life. He forgives your sins. And he has broken the power of sin in your life so that you can live free and righteously, free from the power of sin. 
He has won the battle, and sin cannot, and sin and death cannot come back and overpower God's people. We also see the word salvation here a couple of times. It's used three times in the song, four times in these first two chapters of, of Luke. And it's a unique word that uh, Luke is the only one of the synoptic writers to use of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It carries the, the meaning of health and soundness. And what that reminds us is that no matter what the condition of the captives, no matter what kind of sin, we are made sound in Christ Jesus. We are given health. We are given forgiveness of sins. No matter our past, when we come to Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. And our Redeemer brings spiritual soundness and wholeness and health. When you trust Jesus Christ, you are delivered from Satan's power and moved into God's kingdom, from darkness into light. You are a new creature in Christ. The battle has been won. And Luke highlights this word with the word salvation. We go on to read, to show mercy toward our fathers in verse 72 and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And we see here that the result of this victory is sanctification and service. Christ sets us free, not to do our will, because that would put us back into bondage, but he sets us free to do his will, to live righteously, to live in the freedom that he produces in our lives. The second image is the winning of a battle. The third image in verses 76 and 77 is the canceling of a debt. We see this as he begins the prophecy of John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Forgiveness of sin is to cancel a debt, to put it away, to send it away. All of us are in debt to God because we've broken his law, because we don't match up to his perfect holiness, to his glory. We don't live up to his standards. We are deserving of wrath. And not only that, but we are bankrupt. Jesus Christ. Shedding of his blood. That he made us from those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The dawning of a new day. My version uses the word sunrise. Some of your versions spring or what a picture of a dawning of a new day as Jesus invades our world. He came to shine light who are sitting in darkness and in death. He came to guide us into the path of peace. Joy is realized in the redemption of Jesus Christ. We know that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit when he sang this song, but what's the story behind this song? I think we'll see that in the third point here, that joy is realized in the presence of God. Joy is realized in the presence of God. There's a story behind every song. 
In fact, one of my favorite pastimes is to research the stories behind some of my favorite songs or just unique songs to find out what brought about, what circumstances, what life situation, what genius caused this artist to write this song at this time. It's simple, you know, you always hear the story. At the piano or the guitar, there it is. Months and years to hammer out their processing life situation. There's always a story behind the song, and I find that fascinating. He has prepared. And through prayer, spent that time with God. As we go back and look at the song, Zechariah, a righteous man who studied God's testament. The song, we see the origins of joy. It becomes evident that, that Zechariah's joy erupts out of his God's word and God. Precisely what he Verse 7, pick up of his holy prophets. I am sure the scriptures came alive for Zechariah. Having been approached by Gabriel, having heard from the Lord after 400 years, and now to go back and to reread the prophets and to see what God was talking about. Where did our Savior come from? Here are just four simple prophecies. I think you're familiar with all of them. God promised that our Redeemer, our Savior, would be a Jew. Right? Genesis 12, when he called Abraham. God promised that he would be from the tribe of Judah in Genesis 12. David, when he made that covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And then even a detail. Or a nagging illness of unanswered prayer in that time period when you and I have or muted by doubting God's action and doubting God's work. Remember this, that God's delays do not mean denials. When we think about God answering prayer and the fact that we don't get an automatic yes to what we want, we often look at it a couple different ways. One is that God might be saying, slow down. I, I, the timing is not right. This is not the right time for you for this. It's not fitting in with my timing. I want you to slow down. The delay does not mean denial. It also might mean instead of slow down, just grow, grow up. I want to deepen your faith as I call you into trusting me. Will you trust me as you continue to pray and for this need that I might restore your joy, that I might lead you and guide you in the me. in the present. One of my delights this year, very simple. For my devotions this year, I just read a chapter. 
Go to the next. Make himself real to me, to let me see him in a fresh, understanding way of who he is and what he wants from me and what he has given our trust in him. Presence, fully and completely. How long has it been else? How long has it been since you reflected on the place of confusion and darkness that God had you before he intersected your life with the good news of the gospel? Find an opportunity to share your testimony with someone this Christmas to celebrate the coming of the Lord in your life. And thirdly, looking to the future, we must nurture joy with anticipation of God's goodness in the future. What we have known of God, we will know of him still. You and I can smile at the future as we review the promises of God in Scripture. The silence of God does not have to mute our joy. In fact, the silence of God can be a pathway to joy, as we've seen in the life of Zechariah. So may this season be the one in which you and I see Jesus increase our joy by focusing on him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the joy of knowing you. Thank you for the joy of seeing Zechariah and Elizabeth and the trials that they went through, the hardships, the difficulties, and the pondering of the doubts about uh, your work 